Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back to the Be Unbound podcast. This is episode 56. I am uh, one of your hosts for today, David Rethemeyer. Hello, this is Abraham Chen. And today we are joined by a guest and we are very excited to be talking with this guest today. Uh, he is Nathan Rittenhouse. Uh, if you are not familiar, he has been a preacher and a speaker in the field of Christian apologetics for well over seven years. He is the host of the Thinking Out Loud podcast with uh, Cameron McAllister. And those of us here at Unbound are most familiar with him most recently because he was uh, one of our speakers at at Apex and gave a phenomenal session there. So Nathan, hello and welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. Hey guys, good to be with you. Fun to see your faces and hear your voices again. And uh, always do this with a bit of trepidation because not always entirely sure what you're going to ask me, but I'm looking forward to wrestling with some big ideas with you today. <laughs> Very good to see you, Nathan, as well. And hopefully we'll get to do that. Um, let's start with a big, deep question. And that is... Tell us more about yourself. Uh, <laughs> a little kidding there. But yeah, again, a lot of us in Unbound especially, we uh, know you from your amazing uh, sessions at Apex, which we've all learned a lot from. But some of us might not know how you got started into uh, apologetics and ministry. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the answers that I give come from the fact that I am deeply embedded in a uh, and a very rich and fun community and family. And so, um, yeah, my, my grandparents were missionaries down in Ecuador. My dad was born down there. And then they moved to the mountains of West Virginia way back in the day, like in the 60s, they came up from Ecuador. And um, so, yeah, I grew up in the mountains of West Virginia, a small, small town. Uh, and it was great. Kind of had the, I don't know, you know, running barefoot in the creek with a dog kind of childhood brothers playing with rocks and sticks. Um, but grew up in a church that was really doing a lot of great work. Yeah, I could see the gospel lived out very well, and I could see the impact that it had on people's lives. And so I'm sure that was a deeply formative part of just watching practical, faithful Christianity flourish in difficult situations. So there was that going on. So, yeah, good childhood. Then, I, yeah, I was kind of one of those Legos figured out, you know, take apart the VCR and take the transformer out and figure out how to shock my brother with it kind of kids. Um, and VCRs <laughs> piece of equipment, nobody remembers anymore, but they did have great, um, transformers in them. <laughs> um, so that's unfortunate, but anyway, so yeah, very curious mind had a lot of experiments. I had goofy, you know, systems of like parts of bicycles screwed to my bedroom ceiling so I could close my door from in bed and you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, what do you do with that? School went really well for me. Um, and running went well. So physics, that was the way to go. So I went to college for physics as an undergrad kind of that love of like, how does the world work sort of thing. Um, and I was on a track to do like a physics and engineering double thing. So I did a physics degree in three years and was getting ready to go do the engineering portion of that. And um, I was just having all these really great, like philosophical and religious conversations on the side. And then I was like, you know what, if I'm going to do all this, I may as well do this in class and get credit for it. So there's also this girl that I was interested in. And so I decided I'm going to uh, double things up. So I ended up double majoring in physics and then the philosophy and religion, um, department was one department at the school I was in and then throwing a math minor while I was at it. Cause why not? I was really wrestling with a lot of the hows and the whys college was a fun time for that kind of application of faith and, and thinking deeply about, a yeah, just the big questions of life and looking at sort sort of the academic shortcomings of some of the disciplines and the routine ways in which we try to answer questions. 
So that's all going on. Then I, I like to joke with people that I got my physics and my metaphysics tangled up and that turned into theology. So, um, got married <laughs> the year after I graduated from college. And then my wife and I, I worked for a year or two to pay the college what I owed them. And then did a program in England called the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, which was great. Went over there and rode my bike around in the rain on the wrong side of the road and added use in inappropriate places and words, uh, commas, <laughs> and, you know. But anyway, so that was a great educational time. Went from there to Dallas Theological Seminary, which I think I was considered an international student, not because I was applying from England, but because I was from West Virginia. But anyway, we got that all sorted out. And uh, so down in... <laughs> Down in Dallas for a year, our first daughter was born. That was great. Kind of a very wide open academic year there. Moved back for Virginia at that point. RZIM called me up and said, hey, actually RZIM in Oxford called me up and said, hey, we're thinking of starting this program in Boston. Think you'd be a good fit. I was like, that's a terrible idea. Ended up doing that for three years. Went up to uh, New England, ran around at a lot of colleges and universities doing apologetics there and then finished out an MDiv at Gordon-Conwell while I was there and then moved back to the mountains of West Virginia. And basically that brings us up to uh, the last five years of traveling and speaking and teaching and preaching. And uh, my wife and I have four children now. We love the outdoors, very rich and full life that's full of a lot of uh, stories that amuse me anyway. And the Lord sees fit to use our quirks here and there. And so we're grateful for that. That is an amazing journey. It's encouraging to hear. Can I just say there's the people that I've always met that have inspired me uh, personally and there's people that I think are basically unbound without being actually unbound. And I'm, I, this is not really a question, but like, I'm sure everything you just said fits that bill of being all over the place and <laughs> doing all, <laughs> all, all sorts of stuff all over the world. But I, I'm, yeah. I'm honored to be, uh, yeah, to be an honorary part of the podcast this morning in that vein. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And you also mentioned, hey, like part of what you did was having a lot of deep discussions, and there was a girl. And can I just say that is, as a young person, very relatable. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, that's really cool. And, and so do you think as you went through this process, this journey, was it always like that, just kind of following doors that opened and opportunities? Or was there a point where you realized, yeah, this is something that I want to do, working in ministry and, and apologetics? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think oftentimes in life, we we start doing things before we recognize what we're doing. And when I say that, like I was cleaning out some stuff and I found I found like a letter I had written to my classmates in 2001 when the um, during 9-11 when the Twin Towers went down. And so I was doing mm. apologetics, but I didn't even know the word apologetics. And so even when I started, I kind of went and did the Oxford program and whatnot. And I would, people are like, what are you doing? What is that? And I would explain it. And they'd be like, oh, you've been doing that your whole life. We just didn't know what it was called. And so I think mm. there's uh, there's things like that in life that just kind of fit and flow. It, we do it as part of how we're wired, how our minds work um, and the opportunities the Lord has given us and then given us. And then maybe later in life, they're actually named. Yeah, I think there's a, a good deal of that just kind of. Um, yeah, the Lord doesn't waste our time. He has He has a reason, even when we're all over the place, stringing experiences together in a way that will be helpful to other people in the future. So I take a lot of comfort in that. So there's a plus and a minus to this. The The downside is, is that I can't, here's a strategy that you can replicate to have a random life like me. Because um, there wasn't like, there wasn't a plan. Like it was, it was thoughtful. I was engaging with a lot of people from my church and from my family of helping me make decisions. And there's a lot of discerning going on in there. So mm -hmm. 
no real plan. The upshot of that is, is that God gets the credit for the good things that happen when we can't take credit because we had a master plan. And so I want to make that point very clear that where I've ended up in life was not because of a, of a great plan that Nathan had. It's just that God pieced it all together in a way that hopefully when people see me, they can laugh and say, there's a good God. And apparently he has a, at least a small sense of humor because of that guy. So that's the upside of that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I really, um, something that I think that a lot of our students have appreciated hearing from you is uh, in that story is that uh, it feels a lot of the time like we are pressured to have like either going into or right around college age, have sort of like a 10 year plan figured out of this is exactly mm -hmm. what the career field we're going into and exactly what we are going to be doing over the next few years. And it's really, really uh, encouraging to be hearing from people who have been able to do a lot of really awesome things and be able to hear them say, you know what, you don't have to have it 100% figured out or figure out what God has gifted you with. Look for the opportunities that he's giving you and pursue that with everything that you have. I'm, I'm trying to think through kind of like psychologically how that fits with us. In some ways, there's something deeply comforting about a plan, right? Of like, I know what I will be doing next year on May 2nd, which is totally not true. Um, you know, oh, that we would live in a world with that much regularity where we could come up with that. There's some reassurance to that, but there's also a ton of reassurance to thinking that God is guiding us even when we don't know what the future is. And that seems to be far more realistic as we're as we wrestle with the ambiguity and the chaos of the world and actually has a deeper sense of peace that goes with it, I think, when we say that there's a God who's organizing this and my role is to be obedient to that for this day and let him stitch together the big picture that we can then in hindsight look back on and credit him for. So, you know, as much as it'd be fun to say, yes, we can come up with plans and do them. Actually, I wouldn't change the way that it has happened in my life. Uh, because there were there were times of great uncertainty that felt great. So you can be at peace and not have a clue what's about to happen next. If I think we have a proper understanding of what God promises and teaches and offers us. I think that's one of the ways in which we can be a bit of an odd witness in our world as Christians to have hope and peace, even in the midst of uncertainty. Maybe we'll get into more of that later, but that's extra thought for what it's worth. Yeah, yeah. And so actually, I think that uh, a lot of this uh, ties into some of the things that uh, Unbound students right now are learning, have been learning a lot or are currently learning. Uh, it, I'm hearing a lot of themes that are similar to what we talk about just with uh, you know, a questions-based education, asking good questions and navigate and stuff like that. And uh, I just wanted to bring up the opportunity to talk a little bit about the fact that you are actually instructing one of the courses for Ascend Year 2, which is mm -hmm. really, really exciting. Can you tell us a little bit more and give us a little bit of an insider look at that course? I'm actually having a ton of fun um, with the students who are in there, uh, bright folks and really uh, doing a, a serious job of, of reading and engaging the material and, and having good discussions. The title of the course is Concepts of Christianity and cultural engagement. And essentially what we're doing is we're working through what sort of the, some of the standard narratives of worldview education and political engagement have been from a Christian perspective, and then pushing back against them and using different authors who would probably disagree with us to look at things from a, a bit of a different angle and to say, oh, okay, this is good. Got to be careful here. Kind of combining this idea of what is the nature of belief in, it's sort of, there's a bit of religious epistemology in it. What's the structure of belief? How is it that people are actually holding religious beliefs these days? What, what is the sense of what it's like to not be a Christian right now? What does it feel like to be a Christian? And then 
how does politics uniquely become a foundation and a source of hope for Christians? And so we're pushing back against that idea, I think, of, you know, all of our eggs are in the basket of politics. So there's a we're, we're reframing, I think, the relative importance of partisan politics, not about being public with our faith, not about public engagement, but we're trying to find a theologically based framework for what it means to live well in our time and not have that be a socially or politically constructed framework primarily, but start theologically and then let the rest flow from that. The reason that I think this is uniquely important in our time is that you end up seeing a lot of people kind of walk away from the church because they say, oh, you know, hypocrisy, right? And usually when they say that, there is a charge of like moral failure. So, you know, the, the Christians are just like everybody else. And I'm not entirely sure from my experience that that's true because Christianity has a very well-developed system, if you want to call it, for handling sin and brokenness and moral failure. Uh, there's repentance, forgiveness. I mean, this, it's included within the way that we see the world that people are going to mess up in sin. So that's not the one that I think actually causes the most disruption when it comes to the charge of hypocrisy. I think there's a more subtle one in which people would say, well, Christians claim to trust in God but they act like the fullness of their hope is in politics. Hypocrisy is not actually a matter of holiness. It's a matter of hope. And so are Christians different from the world mm. in the way in which we engage culturally? Or are we kind of sliding back into worldly categories and foundations of hope that are actually too small and too narrow from the full range of tools that we have as Christians? So anyway, that's a long answer to your question. But the course is wrestling with that of how do we appropriately understand the structure of belief in our time? What does that mean to be a Christ follower in that? And then if we have a theologically informed concept of cultural engagement, then that can influence our, our political engagement on the other side of that. So it's really just a let's keep let's be realistic about cultural trends and keep the horse ahead of the cart in our engagement on that and not get sucked into silly conversations and miss out on the bigger picture of what it is that God has for humanity and for our lives and our churches and for America. So um it's a tall, tall task, and we're slogging away through it, doing lots of reading and, and discussing. But uh, thus far, I'm very encouraged, and I'm enjoying it. So hopefully the students are as well. Sounds really, really interesting. And for the record, I am not currently a year two student, but I really, really wish I was so I could take the course. It's just really good stuff. That being said, you do interact with a lot of our students, or even students in general, talking about different questions, and you get a lot of different questions. So I want to ask, what do you think has been the most interesting question that someone, especially a student, has asked you? Yeah, well, um, <laughs> there, there are multiple categories of this, right? So there have definitely been times, as far as like interesting ones, where, where people get up and they'll ask a question that does not make sense. Like they're more like verbal processing at the microphone rather than asking a question. And you got to do this very fascinating, like save their face, but say something intelligent in response to it. And so it usually starts off with something like, well, what I think I hear you saying is... And then I just make up a question that kind of use some of the same words they did. And then I answer that question and we just keep right on trucking. So um, the, those are those are interesting. Any questions that have to do with the personal experience of somebody other than the person asking the question. So, you know, somebody would be like, well, my uncle was in Vietnam and he shot a guy and watched his spirit leave. How does that work? And you're like, I <laughs> um you know, whether or not that's true, how that, you know, 
where, where do you go with a question like that? So some of those are just kind of odd in that way. And you ask the Lord for help and, and keep going there. On a personal note, as far as like really interesting question that I asked somebody if I could have time to think, I was having lunch with a guy and this is a great question. So yeah, this was the question. His question was, what question, if you knew the answer to it, would most radically change your life? So I'll give that to you again. What question, if you knew the answer to it, would most radically change your life? And I was like, that's a good question. I got to think on that for 30 days and get back to you. So if you want a good question to ask somebody sometime that I, I do think like what's what's so great about that question? It's challenging the motivation for asking the question, right? So do I just want a piece of information or am I saying the type of questions that I'm asking really will change my life if they can be answered? And then what would that be? So actually, yeah, after a couple of days, I emailed him and I said, I, <laughs> I said, for, for me personally, I think not theologically or philosophically, but if I experientially knew the answer to the question, what is hell like, that would probably have the most profound impact on my life. That was mm. my answer, but I had to, I had to think about it for half an hour or a couple of days to get to it. So yeah, there, there are questions out there like that questions on all sorts of like divine sovereignty and human freedom. There was a, a theology professor in Oxford that I asked him a question that was fairly nuanced along those lines. And he looked at me and he's like, Nathan, sometimes with a question like that, you just need to take a six years or so and really think through that. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, who wants to take six years? To, I want a 30 second YouTube video to explain this to me. Um, so, but but there, there's a lot of beauty to that of recognizing that some of these things we have to have enough lived experience for the question and the answer to make sense to us. And so those are the type that you can't do in 90 seconds behind a microphone on stage, we have to grow and gain lived experience to go with them. So I don't know. There there are four uh, ways of, of thinking about that from different categories of unique and difficult questions. That's amazing. And if we could touch on that a little bit, for those of us who are at Apex Forge this year, uh, your session was about preparing ourselves for the future and how people won't take us seriously in a way till we're 30. Uh, that really stuck with me and kind of like this question, how some questions take six years uh, to process and, and all that. What are some of the ways that you've discovered going through this process of being able to process these bigger questions as through the years? Is this just mm-hmm. having that attitude of thinking about it or is it um, challenging yourself by talking to people about these things? What has that been like for you? Yeah, no, that's really helpful. So I think I'm going to start with my mom. There's sort of the thing of like, we joke about like the two-year-olds asking all the questions, right? Actually, I don't think you run out of questions at the end of being two. I think people just spend less time engaging with your questions after you're two, and then you stop asking them. And my parents did a really good job of just letting me keep on trucking elementary, middle, high school. Like I've asked so, so many questions myself personally that probably I've still at, yeah, I've definitely asked more questions than I've answered in public, even doing, you know, even during the phases where I was speaking, you know, 80 times a year publicly and doing 45 minute hour Q and A's. So, so part of it for me is like the best answers that you can give are from questions that you've wrestled with already. It's, it's hard to give a, a thoughtful answer to a question you haven't had yet. And, and so that means that sometimes you're going to be asked questions and you need to say, I don't know to that. So there's that element of it. That's a big part of it, of, of living in a culture. Unbound is like that, of being part of a culture where you can really ask questions. It's not seen as a threat to authority, but it's a real pursuit uh, of, of a challenge of just figuring out how the world works. And then 
The other side of that is, is once you do have some insight on that is how do you then use that as an intellectual service to other people? Okay, I jumped in this mud hole and I figured out how to get out of it. Then when other people are stuck in that same situation, did I think through how I got to my answer in such a way that I can help other people with it is part of it. So some of it has been being being intentional about asking good questions, about reading widely, but it has a lot to do with actually asking, like, what's the motivation behind the question? What are the cultural frameworks? Why is this even a question at this time? When we talk about suffering now, why is that a question now when it wasn't framed in the same way in the past? So there's that aspect of it. It's just, is that, yeah, just being curious. Then there's another element of this. Yeah, I'll give you an example. So there's this mountain range behind my house. And I know that there are multiple forest access roads and everything. So I've been on a quest for like the last month to figure out how to find a route where I can ride my mountain bike to that peak. And um, thus far, I haven't found a total road worthy way, but I know enough of like where the roads are. I have a high resolution topo map. Sometimes I have to throw my bike on my shoulder and take a shortcut through the woods and climb over some rocks and then pop out on another road. And I always get to the top, but I, I haven't quite mastered it yet. And the reason I do that is because I love to ride my mountain bike when you get up there, beautiful scenic views. And so I just do it for the adventure of it. But then, you know, a week or two ago, I made some significant progress in that. Within that next week, uh, down at the base of the mountain, I was driving by and I saw a guy standing there looking at his phone, totally confused. And so I, I just pulled over and was like, hey, you're getting it all figured out. And he's like, no, where is this road? And I was like, where are you trying to go? And I knew like the names of roads. I knew directions. I knew parking areas. I knew the depth of water across creeks. I knew where roads came out. I had that experience, right? And then later in that week, a forest service guy who was supposed to be putting up signs got lost and stopped in in front of my house. And he's like, you know where this road is? And I not only knew where the road is, like I knew the the actual numbers of the road and the sub roads and where the roads connected to other roads. And he, I think he was looking at me like, who is this guy? And why does he randomly know all the forest access road numbers of this mountainside? But that'd be an example of the pursuit there was for the adventure, for the beauty, for the fun of riding my bike, for the glory and the splendor of climbing a mountain and watching the sunset and watching thunderstorms roll across. I didn't set out to say, hey, I want to figure this out. So if there's ever a person who doesn't, who needs directions, then I can help them. No, it was just like my, that was something interesting to me. And as I did it, I paid attention. And then later that was of extreme value to somebody else. And I found that time and time again in my life, if I read a book, somebody's going to ask me a question about it. And so this is where you start to see, I think, a sense of divine orchestration in the gifts and the skills and the talents that you have of as you're doing things well and you're paying attention to it, you have the skill set that God will use in somebody else's life be uh, of immense value to it. And so sometimes it's funny things like creek levels and parking lots and mountain bike trail numbers, but other times it's deeply meaningful things of from big existential questions to theological concerns to biblical interpretation issues that I pursued them out of the, the splendor and the worship of exploring them. But in doing so, it educated me in a way that I was later able to help other people. I'm only 34. I'm still deeply into this process. There's a, so much that I, that I don't know and I'm still figuring out. But I think oftentimes people like to ask questions from people who are wrestling with the ideas rather than those who are like, well, here's the easy answer to that. Because I think that does, those often feel like they fit better in our actual lives than the uh, neatly defined canned answers. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's the process that I'm in right now on, on sorting out some response to that question. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. I, uh, I really appreciate that. It's, it's less of an approach of having feeling like you have to be an expert in any particular thing that you're talking about. And it sounds as though it's more of like being the, taking the approach of being a journeyman 
of you are just going out and you're exploring and you're traveling these paths, whether it's in the mountains behind your house or just in deep theological or uh, like just any sort of concept that you happen to be pondering. And that frees you to be able to say, well, this is where I'm at so far, but I'm still figuring it out. I'll share my experience and what I've learned so far with you. And uh, it's it's just a much more, I think, relatable approach to being able to learn and grow as an individual. There's another element to it that I think it takes some of the the arrogance or the intellectual sting out of it to say, I know where this road goes, not because I'm smarter than you, but just because I've been there. Right. And so you're you're always engaging with other people intellectually as total equals. And so there isn't any room for this hierarchical structure of, well, I'm a Christian and I'm smarter. So let me answer this for you. It's uh yeah, no, actually that is a really good question. I've had it myself and I, and I do happen to know something about it, but it's just from experience and the willingness to uh, share it. I hope that that tone is, is Christ-like informative in a helpful way. Yeah. And so I guess with that, uh, you know, uh, like we've been talking about with your unique approach and uh, experience with uh, answering a lot of questions that are being asked, uh, what are some of, in your personal experience, the most common questions that you have been getting asked recently? Yeah. So um, I need to dig it up. I at one point had a list of, I think it was 35 questions, like every high school student should be able to answer before leaving home. And they were more like specific apologetics 101 type questions, right? In the last several years, the questions have been a bit broader as far as, well, actually, I, I, the, the S questions have always, been, have always been big ones. So sex, science, suffering, suicide, significance, satisfaction, um, you know, that's a pretty good list of if you have something meaningful to say in, in, the, in those questions, um, a lot of the the theology and backstory to a lot of those is actually helps you answer a lot of other questions too. So yeah, short answer is I'll, I'll leave it with the, uh, with the S questions. We could probably sit down and write a list of 50 apologetics questions that would cover 98% of what you would be asked in public. And then there would be, you know, 500 variations of those 50 questions, but maybe it's not even 50, maybe it's 30. And then they, they also radically shift and flow with what's going on in culture. So you know, if you're going to a, a university in another state, it's worth looking at the no local newspaper before you get there. And that's going to help you see is it's going to change the types of questions that are asked. So there there are big like thematic ones that are, you know, we've always had in human history. And then there are ones that are unique to specific moments. Totally. And on that note, in an interesting way, I am young, I'm 25, but even I've slowly seen just with reading about history and looking at the different questions today, how their culture changes and there are different shifts in perspective. And so, for example, people have talked about how we've gone from a modernist world to a postmodern world to now like a post-postmodern world, all these different perspectives. But for you, as you kind of go through and answer a lot of these questions, have you seen these changes and how they've shaped these questions differently? How has each generation been asking these questions in a different way? Yeah, no, that's that's a uh, an insightful question, and there there is a shift. I don't know necessarily that it's always in the content of the question itself, but there's definitely a change in the expectation of what we can know and what counts as evidence. And so, 
that's a, a helpful thing to keep tabs on. You might have somebody who, and, and specifically if you have somebody who's kind of in the in the more skeptical, um, they're just throwing out a lot of questions. It, it sometimes feels like you're shooting at a moving target when you're answering questions. So some people say, well, what about this? And you'll answer that. And then they'll say, well, what about this? And then you answer that. And they're like, well, what about this? Um, and so oftentimes on some of these conversations, it is helpful, I think, to push back into them and to say, okay, you've asked this question and it's a really good question. What counts as evidence for you? Or like, what would be the parameters of a good answer to that that you would find to be helpful and meaningful? Bas essentially what postmodernism does as it relates to your question is that it, it celebrates the diversity of perspectives, which is great, but the, it falsely assumes then that knowing all the different perspectives is the destination point. So let's say there are five different ways to look at this. Postmodernism prides itself when you get to the point that you know the five different ways to look at it, not when you choose one that's actually the correct way to look at it. I kind of break this down in the sense of saying like a good education lets you or an education lets you know what the relative relevant questions are in a field, right? So, okay, here's an issue at hand in sociology. And here are the way that five famous sociologists have looked at this. Great. Okay, so that's an education. Let's you know what the questions are. A good education, I think, lets you know what the questions are, but then gives you a framework for beginning to piece those things back together. Okay, so we've kind of dismantled the, the modern, the current way of looking at it. We've looked at a number of ways different people have thought about it, and now we're going to begin constructing a way to actually do that. But then an excellent education would do both of the first two things, would let you know what the questions are, it would give you a framework for reconstructing it, but it would also be taught to you by somebody who actually does it themselves in their personal life. And so this is where Christian witness becomes interesting in secular Q&A is they might be asking the question and thinking that in order to have the question answered well, you just give them three different ways of looking at it. And there are people who do this. They'll be like, what do you think about fill in the blank? And they'll say, well, some people look at it this way. Some people look at it this way. And some people look at it this way. And for me, I'm like, great but I could have gotten that from Wikipedia. What do you think about it? Like you're the one who's here to speak on it. And so I think you got to push past that point as a Christian to say, okay, well, here are the different ways that people look at this. But I think that as you push into this, you'll find that this way of, of perceiving it for these reasons is actually the, the most meaningful way to do this. It's the most biblically faithful. And my experience has been that when you really want to get down to the, to the root of this, this is the way that you'll find this most satisfactory and meaningful. So I think postmodernism would actually allow you to stop answering the question too soon because you're educated if you know the different options. But as Christians, we say, no, we need to go farther than that. So that, that would be an example of what I mean by what's required in an answer. Like one of the reasons I love preaching is you get up and you start with the assumption of the authority of scripture and its validity. But oftentimes if you're doing a public talk, like people don't even believe in the concept of truth. So first you have to start with the concept of defending and defining the concept of truth then defending and defining the concept of the authority of scripture, and then maybe using the scripture. It's exhausting by the time you're 45 minutes into it, just setting up the initial conditions of what you're about to say. You know, it's not insurmountable, but it's just something to be aware of as we um, plug along here. Uh, so, so those would be some of the types of changes I've seen. Uh, but I like to joke, yeah, you know, we were modern, then we were postmodern, now post-postmodern. Uh, soon we're going to have enough posts to build a fence. And there's, <laughs> yeah, you know... There's there's a sense in which some of this stuff sounds great academically, but when the rubber really hits the road of life, we're all way more modern than we think we are. We want our answers to make sense. We do search for meaning and significance, and we are asking out of a, a real desire for knowing and more intentionally living. 
So it's easy to be cynical, but I, I think there's, there's a lot to be hopeful for in the willingness of young people to want to wrestle with literally life altering questions. That's why I keep doing it. Right. Uh, is cause I think not only is, is it fun, it's good for me, but hopefully the Lord uses it to be good for other people too. Totally. And touching on that hope and helping young people think of questions, what should be some of the questions that we are asking? Because I'm sure, again, like we just said, you get a lot of questions from all over the place. What do you think are the questions that we as young people should be asking? I think there's always room to ask the question, is this it? And what I mean by that is if you serve an infinitely creative God, you will be able to spend an entire life of pursuing questions and fullness and satisfaction and what that means to be a disciple of Christ. And so I don't say, is this it in a sense of saying, well, I'm not satisfied with this, but I know that I will never plateau in the possible configurations of my curiosity and what God has for me. God is pleased with you uh, in your desire to follow him, but you are not where he wants you to be yet. He has more in store for you. And so there's, I think we always want to have that desire to grow. We don't want to say, okay, I'm going to work hard here for the next 10 years in my 20s. And then when I get to 30, I'll have it figured out and I'm going to coast. No, it's it's a lifelong pursuit. And so you have to you have to learn to enjoy the education, not just the knowledge. And 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 those go hand in hand, right? But so staying curious will be a lifelong adventure for you. And you'll find renewed avenues of just insight and beauty and delight uh, continuously. Actually, I think it I think it accelerates exponentially in your life. So don't get stuck on like, okay, I got this really push into that. So there's, there's a level of fullness there that Christ has for all of us that we have, none of us have, have yet attained. So for me, that's a good question is like, is this it? Am I, what's, what's next? Not out of the, like what I have isn't enough, but because I serve a good God, I know there's, there's more there and it's bigger. The second question I think you should be asking yourself is twofold. One is what are the forms of human knowledge that can't be digitally stored and how do I learn them? So what are the forms of, of knowledge that can't be digitally stored and how do I learn them? I mean, I guess the short way to put that is that's a pursuit of wisdom, right? So the reason this is important is this, is that what your source of answers is dictates the type of questions you'll ask. And we often don't think of it like that, but you know, I don't go to my doctor. Actually, I don't go to the doctor much anyway. So let's, let's pick something else. Um, I don't go to my, I don't go to the dentist and ask them questions about like the fuel pump in my car because they're a dentist. And my dentist's name is Josh and he's a good guy. And actually he might know something about fuel pump, but my buddy Philip, who's a mechanic knows more about it, right? So anyway, the context in which you're asking the question frames the type of questions you'll be asking. And that makes sense. But to be a young person living in a digital age, we need to think through what are the limitations of the type of knowledge that a technological world has to offer? And then how is that constraining the types of questions that I'm asking? I think that's a worthwhile pursuit is to say, what are the forms of knowledge that I can't get through my screen and where do I learn those? So for me, that's been in Christian community, multi-generational, multi-ethnic, different careers, walks of life, just people who have lived well. You know, the meaningful things that pop up in my life as a question, I don't Google. I pick up the phone and I call somebody or when I see somebody at church, I'll say, hey, I know you wrestled with this in the past. How did you sort that out? Those are the questions you need to be asking. How do I put myself in the position where I can hear from the wise and learn real life things that I can't get anywhere else. And so, yeah, you want to study theology? Great. Read a book. You have a question about sociology? Watch a YouTube video. 
whatever. But don't ever fall into thinking that that's it because God has preserved a wonderful amount of knowledge in the communities around you. And so just make sure you're you're tapping into that and, and that you have access, um, if at all possible, to sort of a, a wealth of, of riches intellectually and experientially that might be living around you, but you can't plug into a wall. So there's a thought. That was really good um, and definitely something that that we should think about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, although I, I would be curious to hear your answer on, uh, so obviously, yes, uh, at 100%, ask the people who are around you. But if people are looking for resources, if people are looking for specific things that uh, might be books or, you know, things that they can look up on things plugged into a wall, what would be some uh, <laughs> resources that people, uh, that you would recommend to others? Yeah, good question. And I and I spend a ton of time um, getting resources from things plugged into a wall and producing content on things plugged into a wall. So I often say I read books to see what people are thinking. I go online to see what people are feeling and I spend time in solitude to do my own thinking. And I mean, that's kind of a cheesy caricature of, of some of those categories. But I think books are really helpful because they have editors uh, and there's a publisher's reputation on, on the line there. Um, and so they have reputations, but I, I think on, on spiritual growth stuff, Dallas Willard is a really helpful kind of starting point name on spiritual growth and formation and, and, and would provide some good questions. Uh, so one of the books that we're using in the concepts of Christianity and cultural engagement, actually it's right here. Um, Alan Noble, disruptive witness, speaking truth in a distracted age good little book that summarizes a lot of um, helpful things of some of the stuff we talked about earlier. So that's a good one. And so those would be my my answers right now. I don't know how you guys read, but I have probably 15 books on my desk right now. So I have, you know, like bookshelves where I store books once I've read them. And then I keep the books that I'm in the process of reading on my desk. You, you'll probably find the use of technology has limited your attention span on how long you can read sustained, like heavy content. So sometimes I'll read like five books at the same time and just read a chapter out of each on, on cycle. Um, and that helps break up my inability to, you know, I used to be able to read like 600 pages straight. Now I'm like a little too ADD for that. So, so there's some strategy there, different categories. Yeah. I think reading fiction is, is actually really great. Um, if it's well-written fiction and that would be your Marilyn Robinson's Wendell Berry's Flannery O'Connor's those types of like really thought provoking, like you can read through it. It's pretty fun, but it's actually deeply meaningful. I think I get a lot of really fun thoughts triggered through that. I usually try to be reading a commentary or two on something, maybe something in a philosophical sense, maybe something in a socioeconomic or political category, and then just kind of keeping an eye on what's being published in the Christian world and what people are gravitating toward. And then a uh, breakdown of kind of my own personal interest on the side there. So fun reading would be one of those. And then I do oftentimes, if I'm hanging out with in the car with John Lennox, I say, Hey, John, what should I, you know, what are three books that have been really helpful in your life? And so as you're doing with me, continue to cultivate that with other people of saying, Hey, in the last people that you know, are reading and thinking, what are things that have been helpful? So that would be kind of my general answer there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really, really helpful list. Uh, I think that at least I definitely will be going to check a couple of those out for sure. Cause, uh, I need to add some more books to my desk. Well, Nathan, this has been super helpful. Uh, once again, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with us for answering our questions and for giving our listeners a lot of really helpful information 
to think about. Uh, you mentioned that you yourself uh, do put out some content online. Where could people find that if they're interested in hearing more from you? Yeah. So yeah, thanks for that. No. So the the past tense content has been on a podcast called Thinking Out Loud. It's done with Cameron, my co-host Cameron McAllister. And the uh, podcast is a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. And so we're looking at what does it mean to use the full source of resources that Christianity gives us in order to make sense of the world? Probably 50 couple older um, episodes there from when we both worked for RZIM. And now we're on the cusp of launching a new ministry called Thinking Out Loud Together. And at thinkingoutloudtogether.com will be the website that hopefully will be up here in a week or two. And we'll be producing probably at least bi-weekly podcast as we reflect on our modern time, questions that people have, current events in the world. Essentially, what we're doing with Thinking Out Loud is we're trying to bridge the gap between discipleship and apologetics. So in classical apologetics, it might be like, what are five reasons for believing the resurrection is true? The direction we want to go is to say, okay, that's a good conversation to have. But then the additional question is, what would it mean to live a life where it looked like I believed the resurrection is true? If I know the answer to this question, how does it change my life, right? So there's there's that. Um, with the overall vision and mission of working alongside the church and forming mature Christians. And so that's the journey that we're both on in our mid-30s. You know, we're husbands and fathers and avid local church members and engaging the world, processing a lot of books and content and thinking out loud together uh, as we journey together. And uh, certainly invite you to join in and listen in on that process with us as as we figure out what it means to follow Jesus in our time and uh, gobble up a ton of books and hopefully make that digestible content for a lot of other people. So we're kind of at the top of the roller coaster and that's about to to kick off soon. So check in in a few weeks and maybe you'll uh, find some content there. 100%. Very excited. Again, Nathan, thank you so much for this conversation. I can't wait to just listen again and, and take notes actually on what was said. So much good stuff. For those of you listening who do want some of the show notes, want to check out Nathan and um, the resources I mentioned and his website, they will all be linked in the show notes below. If you want to learn more about what we do here at Unbound, check out the website. It's beunbound.us. So that's beunbound.us, where we have links to many other resources, including the other places you can find this podcast. There are different places where you can learn more about the work that we do, as well as people like Nathan. Also, there is the blog written by our very own Jay Spower, where we go in depth with many of these questions and concepts that we just covered today. So do check it out. It's on the website, especially the blog, bmbound.us. And uh, make sure to join us next week on our podcast where our staff will be returning. We will have Jonathan, Jace, and Victoria back for a continuing conversation on how we at Unbound approach education in a very unique way. So please make sure to join us next week for that. Once again, thank you so much for listening through this episode, and we will see you again next time. Thank you.